Welcome to the Teaching and Tech Podcast, where dedicated mentoring meets innovative technology. This podcast is brought to you by the educational technologists of SUNY Empire State College. Today, we're talking to educational technologist Alyssa Steele and instructional designer Allison Moreland. They'll focus on the process we have in place and the criteria we look for when reviewing ESC online courses to meet accessibility requirements. All right, so um, we have kind of a, a short program set up for you guys today. Um, so we'll get right into it. Uh, we're going to do just a brief overview of what the emergency accessibility reviews are. Thank you, Mike. Um, and. Uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about who our students are, uh, the methods we use to accommodate those students, the process itself, and then how you can uh, get support throughout the semester after the review has been completed, and then we'll have time for questions. All right, um, so first off is what is an emergency accessibility review? I know that that was my first question um, when I was assigned to this work group. So um, ex emergency accessibility reviews are just accessibility reviews that are performed um, when a student registers uh, for a course that has um, a disability that they have self-identified to the Office of Accessibility Resources and Sur Services. And we do this as a proactive process after the student has registered to identify any concerns that might exist within the course content. These are done uh, to ensure compliance with Sections 504 and 508 of the Rehabilitation Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, I don't want to talk over Allison, so if you want to go ahead okay. and chime in, just go right ahead. I would just say that um, as an instructional designer, um, we really focus on accessibility all of the time when we're designing new courses and, and revising existing courses. Um, so for us, the emergency review is sort of a, a nice double check to make sure that all of our courses um, that follow the master course model are accessible to students with disabilities. Um, and this, is a special, this review is especially important for courses that we haven't looked at in a while. You know, we, we used to have the sort of three-year review cycle, so now, you know, we're in a phase where some of the courses we haven't taken a look at in a couple of years, and the standards have changed, so there might be different things that we look at in some of those older courses, um, and that's where we find those kinds of issues in an emergency accessibility review. Thank you, Allison. So um, one of the things that's really nice, and we actually, I believe, run an award from OLC for this process, the Online Learning Consortium, which is sort of the overarching professional group that oversees online education, um, because uh, it's really nice that this is targeted to the courses that the students are actually um, enrolled in. So you as the faculty are not constantly getting bombarded with these things. It's really just when the student registers for your class, we're going to go in and make sure that everything's going to work okay. So why is accessibility important? I'm sure that I don't have to rehash all of the legalese um, that goes with this, but uh, there's a great quote from an individual at SUNY that uh, I'm just going to read here, which is, our community recognizes that accessibility is essential to assuring equality and inclusion. And while we have a strong commitment to accessibility for all, it is increasingly evident that more needs to be accomplished to truly ingrain accessibility within the fabric of the university. 
Today, digital accessibility touches nearly every aspect of campus life, from applications to websites to courses and a myriad of tools used in curricular and co-curricular programs, services, and activities. And this is from Naisley, uh, whose last name I'm not going to try and pronounce, who's the coordinator for disability diversity and non-traditional student services for SUNY. So it's a very relevant statement. Um, we all have been told to death about the necessity of maintaining compliance for legal reasons, but there is certainly a moral component to this um, to ensure that there's access to all students. Uh, Empire makes a great effort to um, reach out to non-traditional students who are often um, not as well served in identifying these issues earlier in their education in the education process. Um, we also have a mandate that actually came from this report. Um, so this was part of a series of recommendations that were made to all of the SUNY schools to um, meet a couple of standards to bring everybody into better compliance. So those standards included that each campus needed to uh, identify a campus accessibility officer. So for here at Empire, um, for EIT, that is Frank Vanderwalk, and then for the student services part, that is um, Melissa Zuchinski, who is uh, the director of uh, the Office of Accessibility Resources and Services. Currently, there is a committee that has been tasked on the second part of this, which is developing a campus accessibility access plan. Um, and that EIT group is being chaired by Nathan Whitley-Grassi, who oversees the Educational Technologies group. And so our group, our group goals this year are going to be to uh, develop procedures, policies, um, maybe even purchase some new tools to make sure that all of the technology that we're using across the campus is accessible and that all of our facilities are accessible for students as well. So it's a pretty large charge that can't really be quadrant off to one office. You can't just say, Missy, you're going to make sure that everybody is in compliance. It's really a component of what each of us does every single day um, that we all have to kind of be aware of it and make sure that we're at the very least, keeping it in our awareness. Um, so Allison, you've been here a lot longer than me. Is there um, any history you want to speak to regarding uh, how we kind of got to this point with accessibility here? Yeah, I think, you know, I think we've known for a while and we've had a, a couple of good directors of accessibility that really have reinforced the importance of making all of our courses accessible to all of our students. Um, I'm sure that some of you will remember um, a couple of years ago, I want to say like 2018, um, we were actually, and SUNY was actually cited by um, the Office of Civil Rights for some violations on our webpage and, and other digital products that, that we provide to students because of accessibility issues. So ever since then, it's, it's really been um, a a big focus of ours as a college. And, uh, you know, I know that one of the things that we do in our course development, and we really focus a lot on, is making that course accessible. Thank you. All right. 
So um, who are our students with disabilities? Um, they do represent a, an important part of having a diverse student body. Um, much of sort of the more modern take on uh, accessibility is that we need to treat it as a diversity issue. And so, uh, you know, students with disabilities have a lot of unique experiences and perspectives that they can share in the classroom. And um, so just kind of looking at who these folks are, um, about 3% of ESC students uh, have currently self-identified to ORS, that's uh, Missy's office, as needing accommodations. Uh, this is actually very far below the national average. Um, Allison, do you have a really recent statistic on that? I think the last time I had looked at it, it was like 8%? I, I don't know. I know that SUNY has about 8% reporting um, for students. So we're a little bit lower on students self-identifying um, than the national average is. This, uh, this year, so from summer 2019 to spring thus far, that we got four more emergency review notifications this morning, we have done 92 emergency reviews of courses, um, which I, it, it's actually been pretty amazing to see the numbers. I think there were 19 over the summer, and then in the fall there were about 30, and so far this spring we've already done 55. So the incidence of these things coming up uh, has, has increased over time for sure. So related to who our students are, um, Missy has been really great to talk to me about our students and give me some uh, insight into their perspectives. So many of our students have impairments that are directly related to, you know, the fact that they're non-traditional students, um, whether these are age-related impairments or their impairments that were just never identified when they were in education previously because those resources were not available. Um, so these are often things they're discovering as they come back to school or as they come to college for the first time. Another thing to keep in mind is our number is much lower because a lot of students with invisible disabilities are often really hesitant to self-identify to faculty because they are afraid of the stigma that they're going to be perceived um, as being less capable than other students in the course or some sort of burden to the instructor. Uh, so that is, a, that is a very prevalent viewpoint among students and well documented, not just among ESC students, but in students at other institutions as well, that there is just a huge concern um, that they won't be perceived as normal. And that, that's really all most of them want. So here we do accessibility, as Allison mentioned at the beginning, we do accessibility reviews as part of the instructional design process when master shell courses are being developed as well as, as sort of an emergency review um, of all of those courses um, right at the moment when the student registers. So the courses that are maintained by the instructional design team are the ones that really have that taken care of during their initial development and revision processes. And then the instructional designers do take care of the emergency reviews. And then the courses that are more developed by the faculty members themselves are um, you work with the educational technology team when you do your emergency review and we go through your materials, both your Moodle shell and any outside materials that you might be using as well. So the next thing we're going to talk about is the rubrics that we use to accommodate our students. Um, we're going to talk about three rubrics today that deal with three very specific impairments. 
um, I would say that these are probably the greatest uh, sort of physical impairment to being able to interface with the course. There are others that are that we're not going to talk about in great as great a detail today, such as um, mental health issues, anxiety, those kinds of things, um, and how that plays into course design and development. But we're going to start with auditory impairment. So these are students that have a mechanical issue that makes it impossible for them to rely on their ability to hear to get through the course. Doesn't mean that they have no hearing, but they can't rely on it. Um, so the two things that are very, very important for this group of students are video captions and audio transcripts. Now these are two separate types of accommodations that can be provided. In terms of whether or not they're interchangeable, I just kind of want to ask Allison, does the instructional design team have a preference and how they recommend folks in terms of, oh, in these cases you want to use video captions, in these cases you want to use audio transcripts? I think um, typically what we see is that um, minimally we need every video to be captioned and that preferably we need to have it captioned um, not using the automation or the um, machine transcription, but rather actually ensuring that they're captioned by a human being. In most cases, um, educational videos will have both video captions and audio transcripts, but I think where we run into the most issues is when uh, instructors are inserting a YouTube video, for example. Um, the YouTube video might be machine captioned, which means that, you know, the accuracy might be quite low, you know, as low as like 60 or 70 percent. Um, so in that case, that's, that's, a, that's a place where we would want to either swap out the video for another one that is compliant, or we would um, actually create an audio transcript and include that right in the course so that those students have access to that content as well. Yes. Now, in most worlds, the video captions are probably the best solution um, for auditory impairments just because they're synchronized with the video content. So there's no reading a piece of paper and trying to catch up to what's going on in the video or, or orient yourself um, within the video if you're starting kind of in the middle. So those synchronized captions are going to be the gold standard in most cases, and um, and like Allison said, this does apply to all of the content that you're using for your course, regardless of whether it's hosted in Moodle or in our LearnScape site, or if it's just something that you're linking to externally. The next one is our visual impairment rubric for um, users with low vision. So these students um, can't rely on their ability to see in order to complete courses. Now they may have some vision, um, and in these cases, these students often use magnification, so they just increase their font size, increase the size of images in order to be able to get through the course. So when we take a look at this, um, the things that you're going to want to look out for are contrast ratios. So you're going to want to make sure that you have good color contrast and that your fonts are large. Um, so this ratio that they're giving you right here are 4.5 to 1. 
is essentially <laughs> a really difficult number for you to pull with your eyeballs. But there are lots of free color contrast checkers that you can download from the web. Um, you can even put them in as browser extensions. And then you just click on it and you hover over the color and the background color and it will tell you if it meets that standard or if not. And you can provide links to those tools. For text magnification, that should be an easy one for everybody to test because you can increase the size of your font in your browser. You can actually go into your Windows settings on your PC and increase the size of your screen. So for instance, at home, my husband has a TV hooked up to our computer and it's great except when the font size is actually like half an inch tall and then you're trying to read it from across the room and maybe your eyes aren't that good. So we do have a little bit of zoom set up on, on those screens. There is some zooming that is set up on the large TVs that we use to present content here at the school so that you can kind of read the screen better without having to get really close to it. Um, so this is something that you can easily check. You know, go to your Moodle page, increase the text size and the zoom in your browser till it's doubled and make sure that you can still get around and it still makes sense um, how you're supposed to move from one item to the next. And then the last thing is timing control. So this might be a little bit difficult to con put in context if you um, aren't using anything that's automated in your course. These are things um, like an image that pops up and moves across the screen, um, can be a GIF, um, can be an interactive uh, sort of lesson that somebody needs to click through. And what we're looking for here is essentially if that item is lasting longer than five seconds, the student needs to be able to turn it on and off or make it start again so that they can watch it again. Because if you are moving through a page that's been magnified, maybe the item was supposed to start playing when you got on that page, but because you've zoomed in on the page, you're not going to get down to where that item was playing until a little bit later than when a typical user would have gotten there. So it's just the ability for them to control those things so that when they get there, they can play the interactive item just like anyone else. Anything that you um, had to add on this screen in terms of best practices, Allison, from the ID team? Um, I would just say that when we're developing or revising a master course, um, your instructor, your instructional designer will, will really take care of a lot of that behind the scenes. And if anything comes up that's really critical, we'll, um, you know, we'll inform you of why we're making that change. And generally, I think we just make the change. I think the biggest thing that I see when as I'm updating courses is color contrast, um, you know, having having text on backgrounds that, that you just can't read um, if you have low vision. So that that's just something really that as an ID, I would just go in and fix that and, you know, we can sort of talk about it. Um, if there's a really important reason why that color is, is so, is critical to the course, then we can, you know, sort of have a conversation about how to kind of get around that. Because it really, it, the content shouldn't be reliant on color to present information. Absolutely. And that definitely comes into play on the, on the next slide. So 
Um, the final rubric we're going to go over in detail is the visual impairments with, with blindness. So these are users who um, do not have the ability to see are completely reliant on a screen reader. Um, so screen reader is a piece of technology that goes through and reads the page to the student. Um, typically they have some control depending on what program they're using for the screen reading um, on speed, on the type of voice that they use. In fact, some of them are kind of funny in all the different voices that you can download. Um, think Tom Toms, you know, back in the day. And so, uh, you know, the student has the ability to control who's reading to them a little bit, but in terms of where does the screen reader go from one paragraph to the next, or whether or not it reads the alt text on, an, uh, on a visual item, all of that is controlled by the person who made the file in the first place. So this is where it becomes really important that you're following um, all of the best practices around uh, document creation and writing your Moodle pages. So for instance, your content formatting. Um, if you're in Moodle, you're going to want to make sure that you're using the headers that are available to you to organize information. Um, other things that are kind of included in HTML headers would be things like bolding something. So the screen reader will pick up on the fact that the item is bolded um, and that there's a strong emphasis put on something. So you want to make sure that you're using the code itself, the actual HTML, in order to present things. Another thing that is not recommended is using tables to present anything except data, except numbers. So the easiest way to sort of explain it that somebody explained it to me was if you find yourself merging cells a lot um, in your spreadsheets or in your tables in order to make your table um, kind of formatted in a way that makes sense, then it's probably content that's too complicated to be in a table and still be accessible. Um, below that is going to be keyboard controls. So in case you've ever tried it, you can absolutely use the tab key to um, use keyboard controls to sort of go through anything. For instance, right now I'm not able to use my arrows to advance my PowerPoint. That's an example of a keyboard control. Um, things like when you're filling out a digital form and you hit tab to go from one field to the next is kind of an example of ways that most pages you can navigate around just using a keyboard and not using a mouse at all. So it's really important for the screen reader that nothing in your course is going to require somebody to touch the screen in order to activate that item. Should be something that they can navigate over to using arrows and then using the enter key in order to execute it. Um, the next item is describing visuals. So you, you probably have it told to you to death that you have to have alt tags on images. So your images shouldn't provide instructions. Um, they shouldn't have lots amount, uh, large amounts of text on them if you can avoid it. I know that um, in some subject areas you're going to have diagrams and things like that, and it's just going to be necessary. Um, but in those cases, you're really going to need to provide alternative text in the tags that uh, includes all the information that was in that image. Otherwise, the screen reader is going to have no idea what it's looking at when it gets to an image. Video captions are 
important here again because these students can't actually watch the video. So closed captions, um, if you're using a screen reader, can be read to the students. So these are the captions that represent things beyond just what's being said. They're the ones that provide context to any emotions that are going on in the scene. For instance, if the student was watching um, an example of a type of interaction that they would maybe need to do in the workplace. If there are emotions like the customer is upset that needs to be managed, those things may need to be indicated in some way besides um, just what's being read. You may need to actually say something about, um, about how it's being presented. Um, also, scene descriptions and background sounds can be important for providing context. And then the final one is, um, being creative. A lot of people seem to view accessibility as the death of creativity, but I don't think that's the case. Um, you just have to be a little bit more creative than you were maybe intending to. So instead of just using color to indicate what the title of everything is, you're going to have to also indicate it through bolding the text or using headers. Um, you can also use combination of color, but maybe you're also using a particular shape or a particular icon to illustrate a group of things. Um, so there's lots of different ways that you can illustrate things, not just through color. Um, so I, I would actually say it's not the death of creativity, it's just you have to be more creative than, than you were before. Um, so flipping over to Allison, do you guys have any additional sort of uh, recommendations, best practices for screen readers? I think, um, you know, as IDs, we will, um, we will be able to work with you on formatting content. So making sure that um, every document has appropriate headings and the tables are formatted appropriately. Um, if there's an image that is required, like for a complex chart, um, that's a situation where we may come to you as the subject matter expert and ask for you to write a description of what's included in that, um, in that image, because we're not the experts in that. You know, we can sort of help you identify the critical, critical parts to cover but if, for example, it's you know a, a chart in a macroeconomics course, um, we're gonna we're gonna look to you to really help us to explain what's going on in that chart. And I think it's also important to note that we can do we can do that in the alt text in the image, but we can also do that as a separate um, document or resource or handout. And what's nice about that is that makes that that additional language available to all of our students, um, which is just another way of making the courses accessible to, more accessible to everyone. Thank you, yeah. There are tons of um, benefits to doing these things too, not just to um, students with disabilities. Um, for instance, captioning is massively helpful to students for whom English is a second language because they maybe their ability to read is better than their ability to understand from spoken word. Um, so, you know, don't think that you're wasting any time by putting these things in. I know I've heard before from folks, not at this institution, but at previous ones that, oh, I'm doing all this work just for one student for one semester. Well, no, you're not because this that you're doing, you'll be able to carry forward and it will have multiple benefits to students 
other students in the class that maybe you didn't even realize. Um, so it's something to keep in mind. So the process for the emergency reviews is actually fairly simple and straightforward. Um, once the student has requested and been approved for an accommodation through Missy's group, uh, she will send a notification of the approved accommodations to the instructor, the educational technologist, and I should have put the IDs in here, and I didn't, and I'm very sorry, Allison. <laughs> um, so once that list has been sent out to us, we do the initial review of any Moodle course components that we have access to. Um, this includes LearnScape content and anything that's linked through the LMS. Uh, we use the rubric that is appropriate to the student's impairment. So you're not getting reviewed for everything when we come in to do the emergency review, just what's relevant to this particular student and what they need. Um, and Missy does do a lot of conversation with the student as we're doing the review on, is this going to work for you? Do you need something else? What tools and technologies are you using um, so that we can make sure that we're not making extra work for ourselves in the 11th hour? After the initial review is done, um, the educational technologist in our office, we usually uh, contact the instructor to let them know we've done the initial review and then schedule a meeting to follow up and go over the results and address anything that wasn't accessible to us through Moodle. So I'll give Allison a chance to talk about what the IDs do at this point, but I know at this point, for instance, I did a review this semester where the faculty member was primarily using Wiley Plus and not Moodle. So I went into Moodle and it was pretty bare bones, but when I went into Wiley Plus, there was a lot of stuff there that the instructor was using in the course. So I was, um, once she worked with the publisher to get me access there after our initial meeting, I was able to then get access to her course materials and go in and complete the rest of the review. So what about you guys, Allison? Once you get that initial review done, where do you go from there? Um, typically, if the, if the fixes are relatively small, the ID will just make the change in the course and notify um, the instructor. Um, we also, um, typically, I will do the emergency reviews and notify the instructor, but then I'll also notify whoever is the lead instructional designer for that particular area. Um, I happen to be the lead instructional designer for the business, the School of Business, um, so I would then go in and update the course masters. Um, if it's not one of my courses, if it's in human services, then I'll update the instructional designer who's the lead for human services, and that person will go in and make updates into um, the master courses so that in the future, I'll all new courses are poured, incorporating any accessibility fixes that we've done. And we go kind of in the opposite direction in EdTech with our next step. So we meet with the instructor really first before we make the changes because, um, you know, Allison's group is primarily working with courses that are pouring from the master shell. So they've got to communicate upwards after they've done the individual section changes. In our case, we need to follow up with the instructor to make sure that um, since it's an independent study, a group study, maybe they're adding materials to the course as the active term is ongoing and not pulling something from a previously poured shell. So in those cases, the instructor needs to be able to recognize when they're adding something to the course that may 
provide an accessibility challenge um, so that they can reach out to the ET group for follow-up after this final review is done. So we make the changes. Um, we work with the instructor on making the changes if it's something that the instructor would like to be able to do because maybe they're going to add a bunch of documents like that later on in the course. And then once all of those changes have been made, we do the final review and the ET signs off on it. From this point forward in the courses that we do, it's really important that the instructor reaches out um, to us if they're going to add anything new into the course from that point forward. Um, you find an interesting article, you get a PDF, you want to add it to the course. You have a student that has a screen reader accommodation, you're going to need to make sure that you run that PDF by the EdTech group so we can make sure that it has all the appropriate tags and reading order and things like that. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up is we are going to be making some changes to this process for the upcoming fall 20. So our um, goal is to create a service catalog for accessibility um, type issues. So um, have all of our rubrics up there and then, oh, I need a PDF to be remediated uh, for a screen reader or I need an image to be worked on and we need to create an alternative document for it. We're going to have a service catalog that's going to be available in the ticketing system and then you'll be able to put in requests um, to have those accessibility concerns addressed within your courses. But that's something that's going to be coming up. For the time being, um, you're just going to be reaching out directly to the EdTech that did the review. Oops. So there's lots of people, though none of these people that we actually have pictures of, so ignore the people in the pictures, <laughs> who can help you out across campus because accessibility is a beast. It, it's a lot of different um, standards. There's things that have changed. As Allison mentioned, as technology gets smarter, we find even greater problems with the things that we made using older technology. So um, the Office of Accessibility Resources and Services is a great resource to you on um, if you need resources on working with a student with a particular sensory impairment. Uh, Missy's group is fantastic in giving you information and resources on and also interfacing with the student to help have those conversations. The Educational and Emerging Technologies group, we're going to work with folks that are uh, teaching independent studies, study groups, and residencies to improve those course materials and bring them into compliance. So if you're teaching one of those courses and you're working very heavily on your own and would like some support, we'd be happy to provide it. Then the Instructional Design Services team that works to um, uh, revise those online courses that use the master shell model. You have been listening to the Teaching in Tech podcast. Thank you to our guests, Alyssa Steele and Allison Moreland, for speaking with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, join us again next time and recommend us to your friends and colleagues. To learn more about educational technology at SUNY Empire State College, visit the link in the description, www.esc.edu forward slash edtech.